You are tuned to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Do you remember where you were on September 11th, 2001, the day of terrorist attacks on U.S. soil? Well, that's the question we pose to park goers at Magic Island. You see, there's a memorial bench placed there in honor of Hawaii arborist Christine Schneider, who died on 9-11. She was one of nine people with Hawaii ties to perish that day. Kevin Higashiona was watching the sunset at Alamoana Beach Park, not realizing the story behind the bench he was sitting on. We asked where he was when he heard the news about that terrorist attack 20 years ago. Well, I was at home, like in Mililani, at my parents' house. And then I think I woke up, I was supposed to go to work, and then uh, my parents was telling me, you know, come downstairs. And I went downstairs and it was on TV, and I was like, okay, what's going on? So they kind of explained to me, I was like, this doesn't look real, you know what I mean? And it just after it, the reality hit me, and I was like, kind of freaking out, like, wow, this is real. You know, ever since yeah that day, I, I hardly traveled. So, but other than that, like, what I remember is not too much anymore. Especially now, it's more. You know, my concern is the COVID thing going around. Yeah. So, yeah, I didn't even know this bench was. You know, I was kind of shocked that you told me that. I feel pretty bad because, you know, you know, it's been a while already and then every year that, you know, 9-11 comes, it's like, okay, I'll see it, but then I, I feel bad because I don't really think about it. It's like, okay, it happened and it's been a while ago and, you know, I don't know how to feel about it, you know what I mean, anymore. But for former Queens resident Kevin Chen, who just happened to be walking by the bench last night, 9-11 has much more intense personal meaning. The New York native who moved to Hawaii a few years ago recalled that he was there in Manhattan that day and from his window watched the Twin Towers fall. You know, on 9-11, I was still in college, but I was in New York City, had a pretty much uh, line of sight to the towers, so when it was early in the morning in New York at that time too. So um, I was still getting out of bed and I heard my roommate kind of say something that made me concerned enough to run out of my room and see what he was seeing. And both the Twin Towers had already been on fire after the planes had crashed. So pretty much from that moment on, we were just watching TV and seeing what was going to happen, speculating what was going on. Um, but one of the things that definitely is stuck in my head was I was watching TV and the news and you see on the news the towers starting to crumble and I guess I didn't believe it. I thought it was something just on TV so I again ran out into our common living space where you could see it with your own eyes and I just saw them at least one coming down and then a few minutes later the other and we were just kind of in shock and awe um, but yeah I mean as a New Yorker it was kind of crazy to be close enough where we were in like the southern portion of downtown Manhattan so that they when they closed it off there was like no traffic in and out of that ground zero area and the other thing that I remember is just a lot of the people who were coming north from from there because they closed off all the subways all the tunnels all the bridges and everything so everybody just had to walk north to try to get home or wherever they needed to go and a lot of them were like covered in the dust and the soot and it was just eerie because New York City is never that quiet and just the gravity of that situation and seeing everything that was going on is still kind of uh, haunting. Um, but yeah, I tell my girlfriend that too. Like, that's this day that I'll definitely never forget. I mean, coming up on Saturday and we're already like talking about like in our own way, just remembering that day and all the people who got lost on that day. And uh, yeah, and what, happened to the city and the country and the world, I mean, as a result of that, so. Our lives all changed. For sure. Another young man out for a jog on the Magic Island path with Justin Laco. This summer, he made a decision to join the Air Force. Come January, if she ships off to Texas for basic training. With a military career ahead of him, the recent world events and 9-11 events gave him pause. He recalled he was just beginning grade school back on 
I was like six years old, you know, um, just running around, and then my mom turned on the TV, and uh, all I saw was like an explosion, and like they kept on saying like the plane crashed into the twin towers, and uh, for me it was just it was just uh, kind of scary, but in the like deep down inside I kind of felt like a little security just because um, I live in Hawaii and we're kind of remote from the mainland USA especially New York but um, just to know that there's terrorists and they can come from anywhere and uh, you know just terrorize the United States is kind of scary for me. Looking back now I mean you know I know life has changed for so many people but what are you thinking? I feel like the military withdrawing from Afghanistan is um, something that I think about now and how other countries who are a lot closer to Afghanistan can now take control of Afghanistan and possibly become a threat to um, like Europe, you know, like uh, Air Force bases that'll make it easier for them to um, control other countries, you know, allied countries. And you're thinking about this because you just signed up with the Air Force. Yes, I did just sign up with the Air Force. About three months ago, I decided to join the military on active duty. But I figured that, you know, joining the military would help me with my future. This comes at a time when, you know, there's a lot of divisiveness in the, in the country and a lot of threats around the world. You know, when Saturday comes, 9-11, I guess it's just going to take on different meaning for you. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it, it will. Just because of looking hindsight and, you know, maturing and hearing all the news and knowing that it's relevant to me now. Or back then when I was six years old, it was just like, whoa, I feel it more personally. And Leko says he just learned that TSA was born out of 9-11. And finally, Monowili resident Betsy Connors distinctly remembers where she was 20 years ago. She was with fellow members of the Lanikai Kailua Outdoor Circle at Kalaheo High School, getting ready to plant a rainbow shower tree that very morning when they got the bad news. It was a project that Christine Snyder had been involved with, but that day she was attending an American Forestry Conference on the East Coast uh, with then Outdoor Circle uh, CEO Mary Steiner. After the conference and taking in the sights of the Big Apple, the women went to the airport and boarded different planes to begin the journey back to the islands. Betsy Connors, who has three daughters of her own, knows that finding your passion is key to making your mark in life. Christine Snyder found her love in trees as one of the few certified female arborists around. I was, I was in charge of the education committee, and we had worked with John Conley at the um, special arts program here to do a film about the outdoor circle using Mr. Mina and Frank DeLima. And when we finished, we said, you saved us so much money. What can we do for you? And he said, this building is very hot. Do you think you could plant us a tree? So I said, we can do that. So we made arrangements to have the tree, and the city and county came, and the arrangement was to have it planted at 9 o'clock on 9-11 on 2001. And here we were. And when we gathered, we had known, I was not sure my memory, but we had known that what happened, and Mary Steiner had called in and said that Christine was on the flight in Pennsylvania. So we just said a prayer for everybody and planted the tree and watered it and just said this will be her tree. You know, the fact that she was part of the outdoor circle, this was one of the projects right. that she was involved in. And, and what I'd heard was that she was just, you know, so enthusiastic, just she so passionate. Wall. She, just, she just got so enthusiastic about everything she did. She added new life to everything. And even the way she would get on to, she had this pink crash helmet and everything because when she became an arborist, she had to get up on the cherry picker and say that she could do this and that. She had only been married three months when this happened too. And she married a fellow that she knew from high school. And uh, so I guess it was, she had the first shopping spree after she was married. She had in New York shortly before all this happened too. So many, many touching things, but she was just a, a marvelous person. And she had been attending this urban forestry conference with Murray Steiner, who happened to be the head of the uh, outdoor circle. Was at the our time. CEO at the time. Yeah, right. Yeah. And they had just completed it, and uh, they spent a day or two. They even walked to the base of the towers themselves together. She went shopping across the street from the towers, and then they, uh, in the morning, they got on different planes going different directions. 
And Mary said, she said, when we were diverted to Boston, I got a very sick feeling. I didn't know what was going on. And she said, then, of course, we all found out. So there was just a tremendous outpouring for a woman that young. She made a big impact. And so we're here on the campus and right across her tree, the shower, the rainbow shower tree, is another tree that was also planted in her honor by the alum. Right, by the alum of the um, Kalaheo High School. And they put a nice uh, little dedication to the bottom, which we never did. But it's, uh, and they're going to have some kind of a, a celebration on, on Friday for the whole student body. So she graduated in 1987. And there are many trees that were planted in her memory. I was just down at uh, Ala Moana Beach Park. I saw the lovely little memorial bench. And there are a number of trees down there. Well, we have an educational fund, too, in Christine Snyder's name. And um, I, that was always pretty well funded. I, don't, I haven't taken a look myself, but it was funded to help any kind of educational things we did. So especially leaning toward planting trees, because she said, this is my, my thing. We've got to plant trees. And uh, she brought a lot of excitement. One of the funny things was, too, when we, we are in charge of the um, exceptional trees over the women's prison, and we pay to have them, have them done every couple of years. And Abner comes over you know, with his three teams, Abner and Don. So she was kind of helped us get that started too. It was a big deal. Everybody comes to watch them trim these trees. And I think that she was, she was part of that too. Abner knew her very well, Abner and Don. And he said, oh, this is a tremendous loss. So she made a big impact, as I said. And there are trees planted in her honor also, I think, uh, on the Big Island in Waimea. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure because we have outdoor circles on all the island and she traveled to all the islands. So, yeah, that would be very likely, you know. Certainly uh, her memory and her love of trees lives on uh, with, the, with the, the many specimens, I guess, that are planted across the state. So she, left a, she left a good mark. That was Betsy Connors. And so at 7.45 tomorrow, a remembrance ceremony takes place just there by the trees on the Kalaheo campus. Because of COVID, last year's event was virtual. Students who were born after 9-11 learned about the attack and shared the story of the Kalaheo graduate. And Principal Jim Slosher spoke about the marker and the trees and helped put things in context. These are important remembrances for us because they help remind us of what we can become and what we should become as we grow older. You know, there are many stories and interpretations of what actually happened to Flight 93, which is the plane that, the flight that Christine was on. But the one that I choose to believe is that the passengers realized because they had text messages from friends and other people throughout the United States, what was happening with the Twin Towers that they chose to rise up, storm the cockpit, and take away the opportunity for these terrorists to fly to the, to the White House and crash that plane into the White House. They indeed are our true heroes. So when you come back to campus, and hopefully that will be soon, I want to encourage you to come by the memorial. Take a moment to reflect. Look at Christine Snyder's name. Look at the quotation in both Hawaiian and in English that reads, a tall tree stands above all the other. And imagine the kind of heroism that it took for these passengers to do what they did to help protect the United States. So tomorrow morning, there are plans for the Junior ROTC Color Guard to take part in the ceremony. There'll be readings, a moment of silence, and there's talk of a release of doves to mark two decades past and to remember Kalaheo alum Christine Snyder and her love of trees. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Time now for your Backyard Quiz. Thank you.
The 9-11 attacks reminded us of the important role first responders have in our lives. So for today's Backyard Quiz, we're testing your knowledge of the fire departments in our islands. The largest is the Honolulu Fire Department, which was founded in 1850 and today has 43 stations. It was started by Kamehameha III and Alexander Cartwright, the father of modern baseball. Maui County Fire Department was started in 1924 and today has 14 stations across three islands. Organized fire protection on Hawaii Island began in 1888 with the first firefighters hired in 1924. And Kauai's fire department was started in the early 20th century and has grown to eight stations today. One of the things that makes our departments unique is the color of our fire trucks. While the traditional red trucks are ingrained in our memories and appear on television and in movies, the fleet here in Hawaii is a very bright yellow all except for one county. So we want to know for today's Backyard Quiz which county's fire department still sports the classic red for its fire trucks. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center, nareedhawaii.com. More than 200 people testified before the Honolulu County Planning Commission uh, as the second day of public hearings on a vacation rental bill wound up yesterday. Milo Spint was one of the many groups weighing in on the measure. Spint wears two hats. He's with Elite Pacific Properties. He's also the head of the Hawaii Legal Short-Term Rental Alliance. He makes the case against this latest administration proposal. After the September 1st hearing, our overwhelming concern and understanding, not just from our perspective, but from hearing all the individual property owners speak, is it sounds like everyone is, is saying, you know, we went through a lot. We went through years of very intense debate to come up with Bill 89. And, and Bill 89 was a compromise between the community and uh, the government and, and had an enforcement framework that, that should have been put into place through administrative rules. And our concern and what we heard uh, through the testimony was that Everyone kind of agrees, like, hey, uh, the ordinance that came out of Bill 89, which is Ordinance 1918, isn't perfect, um, but it's a good compromise. And why are we creating new rules when we haven't even gone through the administrative rule process to enforce the existing law? And so everyone is calling for the Department of Planning and Permitting to, you know, let's pull this, this new proposed bill back. Let's get together again, and let's talk about what we need to do to come up with the rules to enforce Ordinance 1918. It's not perfect, right? I'm sure we're going to find things that will need to be fixed, but why are we throwing that out before we've even tried to enforce it? And there are a number of legal vacation rentals out there, and how do you see this proposal then affecting the legal ones, even though they're, you know, outside the resort districts? Well, so uh, myself and our company, Elite Pacific, as well as Hillstra, supports, completely supports, enforcing shutting down illegal vacation rentals. We do not support it. We feel like they give the industry a bad name. And uh, we completely uh, support DPP enforcing the Ordinance 1918 to shut down illegal operators. Uh, part of that includes these memorandums of agreement with both Airbnb and the Expedia Group that gives DPP incredible enforcement authority and access to information. And the city hasn't even used that information yet to try and do enforcement efforts. And so, again, before they start 
coming down in this very draconian fashion to shut down any possibilities of 30-day rentals or, uh, you know, people doing short-term rentals in Waikiki, anything that might even be questioned. They're just saying, hey, we don't want any of it at all. And, and under 1918, we're allowed to do rentals of 30 days. And we're just asking, listen, we know there are people out there who do nightly and weekly rentals that are against the law. And what we'd like you to do before you throw the baby out with the bathwater is we'd like you to enforce the existing law. And let's let's work on that first. The proposal on the table now before the Planning Commission is to extend the 30-day rental period. Well, there's a lot of reasons why a month-to-month rental is very valid in the marketplace. Sometimes that's used for people coming from out of state for vacation. They want to stay in a single-family home. And under uh, Ordinance 1918, what a homeowner is allowed to do is they can rent their house out once in a total 30-day period. Now, that means they can't rent it to an if, – if one person rents it for a week, they have to keep that home – vacant for the rest of a one-month period. So they can only rent it out one time in a 30-day period. In addition to doing that, month-to-month rentals are used for a variety of purposes, including traveling nurses, which is very important right now. I live on Kauai. When a family here on Kauai has to go to Oahu, because it's our central business and medical center, they often need to stay for an extended period of time if they're going through cancer treatment or anything that takes multiple medical appointments over the period of weeks. And so it's very convenient for them to rent a home, sometimes near their family members who may be living on Oahu, who can help them get to and from the doctor's office. Uh, We also have military families who PCS in and are looking to buy homes, or or even uh, Hawaii residents who are selling a home and need a, a rental while they're waiting either for their next home to be completed in construction or for uh, uh, just while they're shopping for another home. So completely getting rid of month-to-month rentals on Oahu is problematic for a variety of reasons, not just as these 30-day rentals to uh, people coming here on vacation. Okay, so that uh, that's the argument for the, uh, the time period. Uh, I have heard, you know, the argument about jobs, right, that the hotel workers' union... Uh, sees that uh, these vacation rentals are a threat to their jobs. Uh, but what about the jobs that are created, you know, with these vacation rental companies? Yeah, there's. I mean, there's going to be, oh, I, I, I can't even put a number to it, probably hundreds of small business owners who are going to be shut down, you know, house cleaners, yard maintenance crews, pool cleaners, all kinds of vendors that are used in the industry. In addition to the property managers, uh, we employ a number of licensed real estate agents who do property management for the owners of these homes. And those people will also be put out of business. And then the ancillary businesses like restaurants and other providers in the neighbor in the in the areas where people like to visit, you know, I think those are gonna be impacted as well. And I think during Bill eighty nine there was a lot of uh, of small businesses that spoke out about how that was going to negatively impact them. And so I think the balance that was struck with Ordinance uh, 1918 kind of takes all that into compromise. And what do you think about the idea of expanding the resort districts? It it would cause for expanding the district to include all of the, what is Mauka of Cujillo right now, Uh and then also to expand it to the Gold Coast area uh, Mm -hmm. in Kapilani Park, and then to also expand it out in Makaha. I mean, I think that's a, a valid concept. And on the enforcement piece, the bill calls for uh, generating some fees and then strengthening the enforcement branch of yeah, DPP. Yeah, it's, it's a fairly unusual um, bill for the planning department to request a tax increase. Usually that would come from real property tax, right, to look at changing tax classifications and then increasing um, the the fees or the tax rates on a particular property. So this is kind of an unusual bill that that the Department of Planning and Permitting would make uh, tax revenue increases within a zoning bill. Um, so that, that part um, is a little unusual. Um, I understand their goal there is to fund the seven positions that were approved a number of years ago as the enforcement branch to enforce Ordinance 1918. 
And so uh, through no fault of DPP, um, the city council has never funded those positions. They've been on the books now, I think, for a little over two years or around two years. And um, certainly they should be funding that and they should be enforcing the existing ordinance. And, you know, the concern that I heard overwhelmingly was that many owners, uh, realtors, um, are concerned that, you know, DPP creates rules but never enforces them. So how is creating new rules going to change their ability to do enforcement, right? If they're not enforcing the current law, creating new laws isn't going to change their ability to do enforcement. So, again, we go back to we'd like you to enforce the current law, shut down the illegal operators who aren't operating within the current law, and and then let's go from there. What else don't you like about this proposal? Uh, you know, there's some really, um, really strange things in this proposal um, that include things like um, if you own a condominium unit in a condo hotel, um, the bill asks that or requires that you have to use the hotel management desk to manage your condo unit. So you, you can't manage it yourself as a property owner. You can't manage it uh, with a, a licensed real estate agent, can't manage it for you. You have to use the hotel desk. Um, if you want to stay in your own unit, you can't get a discounted fee. Uh, you can't discount when you stay in your own unit. You have to pay market rate for that. You have to pay market rate when a family member stays or a friend stays in your own property. So those are pretty unusual uh requirements for the government to put on a private property owner in particular. Um, there's also some language in the bill that says you cannot own your property in anything less than your natural name. So uh, it's very common for real estate investors to buy a property and for a variety of tax or liability protection reasons, uh, hold title to those properties either in an LLC or some other corporate formation. Uh, this bill would make that illegal for them to own a uh, anything doing having to do vacation rental in anything but their natural name. And then it would also limit their ability to own more than one unit. Um, and that it, those things are, are, I think, infringements on private property rights for the government, the city government, to tell you how many, how many properties you can own and how you can hold title to those properties. I, I think that's uh, maybe a little bit of an overreach of the city's authorities. And again, we come back to, you know, if you can't enforce the current law, how are you going to enforce a new law? We've been talking to Milo Spent. He's with the Hawaii Legal Short-Term Rental Alliance. The Planning Commission will meet again on September 29th to vote on the measure. If it's advanced, it'll go before the Honolulu City Council for further review. We plan to hear from different voices as this hot-button topic makes its way through the city process. talk about eviction moratoriums for our reality check segment today. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Anita Hofschneider joins us live. Good morning, Anita. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So, yeah, we watched this deadline, uh, you know, uh, come and go. What's the snapshot out there? Yeah, well, the news is that the number of cases is relatively low. There are, as of last week, there were 43 rent-only eviction cases that have been filed. And what that means is that, um, you know, during the pandemic, people could still get evicted if they were breaking other rules, like if you, um, you know, were using drugs or, or trashing your apartment, you know, you, you were still able to get evicted. But if you were not paying rent, and that was your only violation, you know, you were protected by this eviction moratorium. But after that's been lifted, um, it's actually been quite a slow pace, you know, even though People are still expecting, you know, a lot of evictions to come out of this. Um, the way that the system has been set up was kind of allowing uh, evictions to be filed first for people who are at least four months late on rent and then three months and then two months. It's sort of uh, helped kind of make it a little slower than people were initially worried it might be and not 
and, and the idea of, of that was to make sure that the courts weren't overwhelmed. Um, and at the same time, you know, there is a lot of uh, funding going out to help people stay housed. So the hope is that that funding will ultimately, you know, lower the total number of evictions. Right. There was a lot of money available, and officials were scratching their heads because they were like, people aren't applying, right? If Whether the, the landlords weren't, you know, uh, inclined to, you know, release some of their information. But for whatever reason, um, a, a, a bunch of that money sat untapped. Yes, and one thing that um, I was learning was I spoke with an attorney who represents landlords, and he was saying that it's important to know that that money was uh, had a lot of strings attached. So you, you had to meet certain income limits. So say you stopped paying your rent, but that you were above the income limit, you wouldn't be able to take advantage of that funding. Um, you also had to provide a lot of documents like income verification, and that can be difficult for people. Um, and then also sometimes the policies change was, was what he was saying, and so that led to some confusion. And so I think that even though there is funding, it's not necessarily getting to everybody who is back on rent, and then that means that they are either you know, needing to find that money somewhere else or a landlord are able to evict them. So this attorney was telling me he's been filing lawsuits to the tune of twenty to $30,000. Um, which is, you know, a lot more than normal. And there was just recently a, uh, what, a demonstration, a protest, I think, uh, was it at Washington Place, uh, for folks mm-hmm. who want to get the governor to, to, you know, bring back the moratorium? Yeah, the pressure is on EGA to bring back the moratorium. I mean, if you see how bad the cases are, and the idea for the moratorium initially was, you know, because this is a public health emergency, and it made sense to keep people housed that they didn't need to, um, you know, move in and, and overcrowd and double up with other people. Um, but the governor isn't planning to do that, even though um, not only is the pressure coming from, like, local social service organizations and activists, but also from the Biden administration itself, because they're frustrated that the federal eviction moratorium was struck down um, by the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, but the governor, you know, he points to the existence of COVID-19 vaccines, and state-funded mediation for landlords and tenants, and um, and says he doesn't have any plans to revive the moratorium, which is you know frustrating for a lot of advocates for renters, but definitely a relief for landlords who have been you know eagerly awaiting the opportunity to um, you know get rid of some tenants who haven't been able to pay. Yeah, and there is some concern, you know, with the downturn with tourism, we're getting into a slow period that you know there might be more people that will be out of work or having their hours cut. Um, you know, in this Definitely. Downturn. I mean, the governor has asked tourists to stop coming to Hawaii. And when I was listening to Spotlight uh, from the Star Advertiser the other week, I heard the state epidemiologist Sarah Kemble, you know, saying she wouldn't eat inside a, a restaurant at this time. And so the, I actually spoke with the unemployment insurance office, and they said that they're expecting more people to file for state unemployment in the coming weeks, especially because there was federal unemployment funding that recently expired. Yeah, well, we'll just have to see how this plays out. But thanks so much, Anita. No problem. Take care. That was reporter Anita Hofschneider with today's Reality Check. Read her story. Visit civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to enjoy the museum's galleries and outdoor courtyards until 9 p.m. on Friday and Saturday evenings. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. In 2001, Barbara Lee was the only member of Congress to vote against the Afghanistan war resolution. Did I get blowback? Oh, my God. I got blowback. Someone actually called my home phone and uh, shot guns into the voicemail. How did the past 20 years change her and the nation she serves? Our series, The Longest War, continues with Barbara Lee on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Par Hawaii, an energy company, with their employees supporting local nonprofits, including the Hawaii American Diabetes Association. ParHawaii.com. The Department of Public Safety has come under fire again as outbreaks of COVID-19 in prisons and jails pop up across the state. 
Next week, a five-member oversight commission will begin to investigate the conditions that have led to sky-high rates of COVID among our prison population. Over 2,700 inmates have contracted COVID-19 since the start of the pandemic, and nine people have died. But employees at our prisons and jails are also at high risk of exposure to COVID-19. The Department of Public Safety says there's currently at least one active case of COVID among staff members in all but one of our correction facilities. OCCC on Oahu currently has 18 active cases. The conversation Savannah Harriman Pote reached out to Sean Colatario, the corrections advocate for UPW. The union represents some of, uh, public, of the public safety employees who work in prisons and jails on the Big Island and Oahu, including OCCC. What is the feeling among workers in these facilities? Does it feel inevitable that they will get or contract COVID-19? Well, the feelings are mixed. Um, the Correctional officers and our Unit 1 counterparts, they know that the prison has always been a hotbed for all types of diseases, right? Flu outbreak, when there's tuberculosis and infections, uh, that's always a concern. And our correctional workers at the onset of their career have already received their hepatitis vaccines because of the high risk that's involved working in the prisons. A lot of the inmate population come straight off the street, right? They're housed and thrown in with the population, and um, we don't know what their health background is or if they've been exposed or are contagious. So the correctional staff are trained to use what we call PPEs, personal protection uh, equipment, and to treat you know everyone as if they had a contractable disease. Mm. So you're saying a lot of the precautions that have become so familiar to everyone in the past, gosh, year and a half, almost two years now, were already steps that were familiar to people who work in these facilities. That's correct. When we had the big mask mandate in the public, there wasn't much of a change for the correctional staff because we, we were always accustomed to putting masks on and gloves and constantly washing our hands. You know, the staff received annual training on that. What was a problem early on in the outbreak was a shortage of that equipment. Yeah, well, that's one bright side of being in this stage of the pandemic. We do have access to those types of things that we didn't have access to in early 2020. And we also have access to a vaccine, according to the Office of the Governor, who published on August 25th the different reports from each state agency of vaccination rates. PDS clocked in at 77.1%, which was the lowest of state agencies at the time. A spokesperson for the department, Tony Schwartz, did clarify that roughly 10% of their employees are on some type of leave. And when you exclude that, that number comes up to 83%. Can you first clarify for me why the vaccination rate is comparatively low and also what's meant by that type of leave? Well, to answer your first part, I really can't answer why it is so low as compared to other departments. And I, I don't know whether those numbers encompass just the uniform staff that we represent or if that encompasses both the uniform and non-uniform white-collar workers, support staff, or PSD. That has not been given to us in detail, so um, I, I can't answer as to how much of that a non-vaccinated percentage is members that we represent or if it's members represented by another another union. I can tell you that the leave that the, the department refers to is a mixture of workers' compensation, uh, employees that are out on injuries sustained at work. That attributes to the highest amount of people on leave. Uh, we have several out on military leave or extended military leave that have been called to active duty. We also have members that are on extended sick leave and family leave. You mentioned sick leave. Does that include people who are currently quarantined or isolating because of either exposure or because they have tested positive for the coronavirus? Sure, that could, sure, that could include those that have been um, kept home by um, direction of Department of Health through ex from exposure. Initially on the onset of the, the outbreak, the employer provided paid leave if an employee had to um, quarantine under the direction of the Department of Health. That expired back in July of this year. At the end of July, it expired. 
the union reached out to the employer to try to extend that leave coverage. The department has taken the position that that is a health-related issue and that the employees are to use their own sick leave, even though the COVID outbreak seemed to have resurfaced and on the uptake. What is the sentiment from workers about that decision? Oh, of course, yeah, of course they're disappointed. You know, they're required to go to work. They're required to risk contracting this disease, and um, they're disappointed that the employer's taking that stance. How much sick leave do these employees get on average? So the employees accrue 21 days of sick leave and 21 days of vacation per year. Uh, Sick leave can be accrued uh, indefinitely. Vacation is limited. So if you were ordered by the Department of Health to isolate for 10 days because you have tested positive for COVID-19, that's half of your sick leave. Correct. I might add that these exposure incidences are reoccurring. So if someone comes back from exposure quarantine and then a month down the line, they get another exposure risk, right? Say they get another inmate come in and they somehow contacted that inmate unknowingly meat was positive, that's another, that's another quarantine that they have to stay home, right? right? So that's another incident of they're going to have to use more leave. So. It does seem like there's an instance in which someone could run out of paid sick leave. At that point, are they taking unpaid time off? The employer has reviewed it on a case-by-case basis. Our instructions to our members who had run out of leave or who had to use their own leave which is what we've had to fall back on is just to file a workers' comp claim because that is the only way that employees will be able to recoup their leave or not face discipline if they did run out of leave. So the department is not looking at why you're taking leave. They look at if you have leave or not, and if you don't have it, you could face discipline, yeah. How many of your of the people you represent have you had to give that recommendation to? Off the top of my head, that advice had to be given to at least 15, I would say. It's very difficult. You know, we are limited as to what we can do. As you know, the governor used his emergency powers that was allowed him to circumvent collective bargaining laws regarding this COVID-19. So it does put us in a difficult position. On the other hand, we are very concerned with the health and safety of our workers, right? We want them to do whatever they can to ensure that they stay safe and their families stay safe. So with these reoccurring incidents of people who have to take extended periods of leave. Are you seeing significant staff shortages? Are you seeing workers filing for overtime to make up for those absences? We had a vacancy problem before the onset of COVID, and it's been getting worse over the years. COVID just brought it to the forefront. Our members are working 24, 36, 40 hours straight you know, with, with no break. And because they're making them work such hours, they have to give them an admin day off you know, to rest, which in turn causes more vacancies and more shortage, and it's just a snowball effect. The solution is to fill the vacancies. We've been talking about correctional facilities since the start of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. The Office of the Public Defenders filed a third writ looking at overcrowding in these facilities as a cause of repeated outbreaks. A five-member oversight committee is going to be up and running next week to look at what's happening inside of prisons and jails in relation to COVID-19. What's the feeling among correctional facility workers and the union about this oversight committee? Well, I can tell you that some of the members that have been watching the lawsuit welcome the oversight because it tends to bring the facilities into compliance with their own policies. As you know, Department of Public Safety was accused of not following their own pandemic plan. The onus lies with them, and and so in that sense, the members are looking forward to the progress that this oversight committee can accomplish. I do want to say for the record that our men and women, both in Unit 10 and Unit 1, are having to do an inconscionable thing I have spouses calling me, asking me why my husband has not been coming home. And this is the kind of sacrifices that our members are making on a daily basis in trying to keep this boat afloat in corrections. Members are working 36, this is unheard of, 40 hours straight. How that's humanly possible, I don't know. And it is a detriment to their health and their well-being. 
We need to fill those vacancies. The monies are there. The positions are appropriated. We need to fill the vacancies. And I don't know what they have to do to fill them. I do know this. The last recruit class that was supposed to graduate, less than 20 graduated in the recruit class. Halava was supposed to get six recruits. They got two. They have to do something to increase the recruitment, increase the recruits coming out of training, and they have to do it quickly because we're losing them as fast as they're hiring them. We've been talking about the issue of overcrowding in correctional facilities throughout the pandemic as an issue of physical space. Our facilities have been above their design capacity, but would you say it's fair that it's not just that there isn't enough space, there isn't enough staff? And so when we talk about reducing overcrowding, is that another way, aside from hiring vacancies, that we could make it more manageable, that we could make the system more manageable and more humane for all people involved? I think it's a start. I've always said that if we can fill the vacancies, then we can talk about other causes of whatever problems that might occur. But you can't have any of those discussions until the vacancies are filled. But one day, overcrowding, in terms of the burden that it puts on staff, might also be part of the conversation. Absolutely. That was Sean Colatario, a corrections advocate for UPW, talking with HPR Savannah Harriman Pote. The state human resources department said those workers who test positive must take personal sick leave and added that for employees who have to quarantine after exposure, the type of leave they take depends on individual union agreements. Backyard Quiz, we were testing your knowledge of our state's fire departments. While many classic images of fire trucks have been painted in the traditional red, the majority of the fire department's fleet in our islands are yellow. The change to yellow happened in the 1980s after a study conducted in the 70s determined it was more visible and therefore a safer color. According to the study, it's almost fluorescent in some lighting conditions and more identifiable in all light. In addition, the yellow doesn't fade as fast as red does. At one point, all four county fire departments sported yellow on its fleet until one county decided to return to the classic red. If you're a fan of fire department history or a Garden Isle resident, then you know we're talking about the Kauai County Fire Department, which is the answer to today's backyard quiz. Outside of our county departments, you might also notice that the fire trucks belonging to the federal fire department which serve our military bases, are also coated in that classic red. And congrats to Zach DeWalt of Kauai. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older, with virtual courses designed to engage the mind and enrich lives. Classes begin September 20th. More by searching Osher Hawaii. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Regina Louise, author of Permission Granted. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be discussing intention, positive action, and self-love. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. As we close out our show and in remembrance of 9-11 and the lives lost and the people who survived, we asked you to send in your memories of that day. Here are a few of the messages we received on our talkback line. My name is Tom Nakaniua. I'm calling from Haleiwa, Hawaii. I was driving to work that morning and I heard it on the radio. My son was actually driving me and he was 16. And he was excited because he was going to get to use the car. 
and I was shocked by what I was hearing on the radio. He didn't seem to understand the gravity of what was happening. I got to my job. I ran in. My boss was an employee of Merrill Lynch. She was glued to the TV also because this was very relevant to her career and her day-to-day. And we just sat in shock and horror as the whole thing played out on TV. I still remember it vividly. Aloha, this is Rachel Zarr calling from KAL. I flew out of New York on September 10th, 2001, late in the evening, on my way for my backpacking Europe trip. So my friend and I were somewhere over Germany when the attack occurred, and we landed in Istanbul, Turkey. And on the bus, leaving for town, we saw the TV showing President Bush talking to children, it was in Turkish, Turkish CNN, so we couldn't understand what was happening. And then it showed a graphic of the United States with several bombs going off, you know, depictions of bombs going off across the map. So it was a very surreal time to be away. We were gone for five weeks. Um, and upon returning to New York, it was um, quite a different place. So that's my story. Aloha. Tomorrow, Noe Tanigawa will join you for an Aloha Friday show. And you know, next week kicks off the Safe Access Program on Oahu and Maui. What do you think about having to show proof of vaccination? What do you think about the Mobile Health Pass? Call the Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.